In the last episode of Philippine History Z, we talked about the conquest of the Philippine Islands by the Spanish, how it started, and how it proceeded. Although local resistance continued, particularly in Mindanao and the highlands, much of the archipelago was under the Spanish crown by the 17th century. If you've been keeping up with the news, you'd know that there is now a global movement to remove statues of controversial historical figures, particularly those with racist and imperialist legacies. In fact, there are still statues of figures from the Spanish conquest and occupation of the Philippines standing today, such as the statue of Miguel Lopez de Legazpi in Cebu. But before we discuss what to do about these monuments, I think it's best to first talk about what to make of the Spanish colonization of the Philippines. Whether or not the Filipinos willingly gave up their freedom, as nationalists like Rizal and Bonifacio saw it, Spain still conquered the Philippines. It took away the sovereignty of different kingdoms, sometimes violently and sometimes peacefully. It doesn't help that we'll never truly know to what extent the natives resisted the conquest, since all the primary sources on that period were written by the conquerors themselves. It's also important to mention that these kingdoms would often go to war with each other as well. So I don't think it makes any sense to celebrate the Spanish conquest of the Philippines as a proud moment in human history, though I would argue that it's at least nowhere near the conquest of the Americas, which resulted in the deaths of millions of indigenous peoples. As for the statues in the Philippines of figures from the Spanish era, I don't think we should get rid of them, not because we should celebrate Spanish colonialism, but because they could serve as reminders of and when those two are passed as a nation in general. It wouldn't make any difference if they were statues of dogs instead of conquistadors, and to remove them would be like destroying Nazi propaganda displayed in the Holocaust Museum. Just put these statues in museums and place signs to put them in their proper historical context. Now, it's one thing to condemn the Spanish conquest as a historical wrong, but it's another thing to just simply label all of the Spanish period as an age of oppression. We're talking about 400 years of history. Not to mention the fact that, and I must stress this, the Philippines is more than a small country. It's also an archipelago. That is to say, it's a small country composed of thousands of islands with disparate populations and disparate conditions in different regions. Also, Rizal and Bonifacio basically claimed that the Spaniards convinced the natives to give up their independence in exchange for progress and civilization. Whether or not the Spanish kept their end of the bargain is a whole different story, and something that we'll touch on later in this podcast. We'll now look at how the Spanish ran their new Asian colony, focusing at its political, cultural, and economic organization up to the 18th century. This is Philippine History Z. days of the Spanish regime, the political structure was very simple. At the top was the governor-general, who basically had the last word in all governing affairs. Appointed by the Viceroy of New Spain, or as it's better known today, Mexico, he resided in the city of Manila, which remains the capital to this day. Every decision, from appointing officials to enacting laws, was all up to him. The second highest authority in the colony 
was the Royal Audiencia of Manila, a judicial body that was first established in 1584 with the Governor-General serving as its president. The Audiencia was mostly consultative in nature, with the Governor-General making the final decisions. Once a village submitted to Spanish rule, the Governor-General would assign someone to run it and its inhabitants. It was usually assigned to a Spaniard as a reward for his role in the conquest. The population would then serve as an encomienda, from the Spanish word encomendar, to entrust. The Spaniards then served as their encomendero. This system was first introduced in the Americas years before, and just like in the Americas, in theory, the encomendero was supposed to look out for the natives and teach them the ways of the Christian faith. This system would last into the 17th century, after which the archipelago was divided into three to four provinces, all ran by officials usually called alcaldes mayores. Over the years, the number of these officials would grow as more provinces were created. They served as governors, judges of the first instance, and army commanders. They were expected to be keepers of peace and order and defenders of the natives. In theory, of course. From the very beginning, the Spanish colonial state was plagued with political corruption, incompetence, and abuse. Many high-ranking Spanish officials were actually unqualified for their jobs, which they mostly got through their friendships with the governor's general. Before the mid-19th century, most Spaniards who traveled to the colonies preferred going to the Americas, which were closer and more lucrative. Those who ended up in the Philippines were there mainly by chance, and often came with little money, education, or family. Their main interest in the islands was making easy money and living the good life in the tropics. In other words, the cream of the crop went to the Americas, while the Philippines had to make do with the rejects. One Spanish writer reported that it was common for a governor's servant or hairdresser to suddenly become alcalde mayor or commander of a military post in the provinces, placed in charge of hundreds of thousands of natives. This reality is depicted in the mid-18th century novel, the third chapter in the life of the great swindler, written by Vicente Alemani, a Jesuit priest stationed in the Philippines. An unofficial sequel to Spanish literary legend Francisco de Cabedo's classic swindler series, it follows the titular swindler, Pablos, as he tries his luck in making a fortune in Spain's growing colonial empire. He first goes to New Spain, where he adopts a new identity and becomes governor of a province. He is later arrested and goes to jail where he meets a criollo, America-born Spaniard, who tells him about his life in the Philippines, where an army deserter could turn into a general, or where exiles from Spain and the Americas could become governors of provinces, where they could make a killing by squeezing the economy dry. In a word, the Philippines was both a dumping ground and paradise for the rest of the Spanish Empire's rejects. Pablos eventually has himself transferred to the Philippines where he arrived in chains, only to later become governor of the province of Zamboanga. After submitting to Spanish rule, the natives were organized into groups called barangays, which were then incorporated into the encomienda. 
Spanish writers, and subsequent Filipino historians believed that the pre-Hispanic communities called themselves barangays. And so, the Spanish government simply adopted it to preserve the pre-Hispanic elite. It turns out, however, that the truth is a bit more complex. Damon Woods, who I mentioned in the last episode, posits a different story about pre-Hispanic Philippines. Contrary to what we may believe, the pre-Hispanic barangay may have never even existed. In his thought-provoking article, The Myth of the Barangay, Woods explains that in Tagalog documents written by the Spanish government when consulting the natives, none of them ever actually claimed to belong to barangay. As I said in the last episode, Woods portrayed pre-Hispanic Tagalog society as very flexible, with no fixed hierarchy and borders. For these early Filipinos, the tribal political unit as understood by the Spaniards from their encounters in the Americas didn't exist. To govern them properly, the Spaniards had to invent a new political unit with a fixed leadership, the barangay. According to William Henry Scott, the term barangay may have been a corruption of the term balangay, which was used to refer to a boat. As a term of political organization, it did not exist. Now, of course, this may have applied only to Tagalog groups, and even then, not all Tagalog groups, as there are probably still countless other early colonial legal documents written not just in Tagalog, but other Filipino languages like Cebuano and Bicolano. Perhaps some other groups did call themselves barangays, more research would be needed for that. In any case, if the barangay didn't exist before, it certainly did now. In 1589, the government started the process of consolidating the barangays into towns, all under the direction of the parish priest, often a friar. This reorganization of the conquered regions turned the native communities into something larger than the old barangays, with the average town, or pueblo, having 500 families. In charge of each of a pueblo's barangay was the cabeza de barangay, barangay head, usually the respective tribe's leader before Spanish rule. It was a hereditary system, and if a cabeza family died out, the Spanish government simply chose a replacement. Every year, a pueblo's cabezas and other native elites would submit a list of candidates for the pueblo's native head, the gobernadorcillo, little governor, with the encomenderos and later the provincial governors making the final decision. The gobernadorcillo was basically the pueblo's mayor, who was in charge of keeping the peace. He could sentence natives to a day in prison or six to eight lashes just for missing the daily mass or getting drunk. As the most powerful natives of the pueblo, the cabezas de barangay and the gobernadorcillos would become the first batch of native elite, collectively known as the Principalia. In fact, some of the country's most powerful political families are descendants of these officials. For example, the Macapagals of Pampanga, from whom came two presidents, traced their roots to Lacandula, the king of Tondo, who befriended Legazpi during their conquest of Manila. As the Spaniards proceeded to conquer new areas, they dispatched religious missionaries to begin the process of Christian conversion. Each pueblo was built with a parish church, a convent, which is where the friar lived, and houses of leading native families surrounding a square plaza. After all, the official reason behind the conquest 
slash acquisition of the Philippines in the first place was to spread Catholicism in the East. The missionaries were all members of religious orders, mostly those of friars, like the Franciscans, Dominicans, and Augustinians. The non-friar Jesuits were also assigned their own territories in the provinces. Due to the lack of secular priests, those not members of any religious order, the friars and Jesuits were allowed to administer the newly created parishes. Unlike in the Americas, where the Spaniards taught the natives the Spanish language, the missionaries in the Philippines opted to learn the local languages, mainly due to their small numbers. They also wrote language instruction books for future missionaries and seminarians. In 1593, the friars introduced printing to the natives. They also taught them how to read the Latin alphabet so that they could read religious texts, though they refused to let them read texts that they deemed heretical. Later, the Doctrina Cristiana, Christian Doctrine, became the first book to be published in the Philippines, with prayers written in Spanish as well as Tagalog. In the early years of the Spanish regime, the largest critics of the encomenderos were Catholic missionaries. Some, like Alemani, attacked the corruption and inefficiency that plagued the government. Others, like Manila's first bishop, Father Domingo Salazar, staunchly defended the rights of the natives. What Bartolomé de las Casas was for the indigenous in the Americas, Domingo Salazar was for the native Filipinos. Without him and others, Madrid would never have learned about the excesses of the encomenderos and other officials. The clergy were also pioneers in Philippine education, with the archipelago's first college, the Colegio de San Jose, being opened by the Jesuits in 1601, followed by the Universidad de Santo Tomas by the Dominicans in 1619. Even though these schools were initially opened only to children of Spaniards and only taught Latin, philosophy, and theology, these colleges predated prominent Western universities such as Harvard, the first college in the United States. Despite their efforts though, the Spanish missionaries were never truly able to completely convert the natives to Christianity as they interpreted it. For years, the natives would continue to incorporate pre-Hispanic beliefs and practices into the new religion, much to the missionaries' frustration, creating a uniquely Filipino kind of folk Christianity. Nevertheless, it was pretty clear that the real conquistadors of the Philippines were not the soldiers, but the missionaries. As more Spaniards and other groups arrived in Spain's newest possession, a racial pyramid in the conquered regions began to take shape, just like in the Americas. At the top were the Peninsulares, Spaniards born in Spain. They were the ones who enjoyed the highest-ranking positions, such as governors, army commanders, and top-ranking clergy. Below them were the Insulares, Spaniards born in the Philippines. Like their counterparts in Latin America, the Criollo, the Insulares formed the minority of the population, albeit a much smaller fraction than in the Americas. Then, below them, were the Spanish Mestizos, those born mostly from native mothers and Spanish fathers. They were largely wealthy, though not as privileged as pure-blooded Spaniards. Then, there were of course the native Filipinos, who made up the majority of the population. Like the indigenous in the Americas, they too were called Indios, or Indians, despite the fact that most, if not all, had never even set foot in India. Though their pre-Hispanic leadership was mostly preserved, they still answered to the Spanish authorities, whether it was the parish priest or a local official. 
To counter the numeric threat posed by the Indios, the Spaniards engaged in a divide-and-conquer strategy to make sure that they never united against them. Aside from attempts to prevent solidarity between the Chinese and natives, they divided populations and provinces based on language, resulting in the linguistically divided provinces we have today. Furthermore, no Spaniard other than the parish priest was allowed to live in an Indio town. Then, there was the large Chinese community that had existed in the Philippines since before Magellan, and who were more numerous than the Spaniards. Commonly referred to by the Spaniards as Sanglei, most of them were merchants from southern Chinese provinces like Fujian. The Chinese relationship with everyone else was, at best, a love-hate relationship. Distrusted by both the Spaniards and the Indios, they were constantly ostracized and discriminated against, with the government restricting Chinese immigration. At the same time, the government came to rely on their prospering businesses, which included retail. Many of them lived in the Parian, a special district established near Manila in 1581 to restrict and control their movements. There, they were able to make a living and sell their wares. Anti-Chinese hostility would continue to grow until 1603, when many Chinese, no longer able to endure further harassment, rose up in an 18-day revolt. They succeeded in killing Luis Perez das Mariñas, a former governor general and encomendero of Tondo, impaling his head on a pike and parading it outside the city. The revolt ended with a massacre of 25,000 Chinese by Spaniards, Indios, and others, with the survivors sentenced to hard labor. In time, attitudes towards the Chinese would soften, and their products, from handicrafts, construction work, and food, earned the respect of many. Indeed, they would influence Filipino culture from cuisine to language, with some common Tagalog words like ate, older sister, being of Chinese origin. Despite Spanish efforts to separate them from the native population and discrimination from both the Spaniards and Indios, many Chinese intermarried with Indio women, leading to a large population of Chinese mestizos. The result was that unlike today, when the term mestizo is mostly associated with those with European blood, the term as it was understood in the Spanish era mostly applied to Chinese mestizos. These people learned commercial and artistic skills from their Chinese fathers, later becoming one of the country's richest groups. The status and identities of Chinese mestizos were so much more manifold and flexible than all the other groups that it would be impossible to box them all into one category. There were those who identified with and generally shared the same status as poor pure-blooded Indios, marrying other lower-class Indios and disappearing into the greater native population. Though it's pretty common for mostly native Filipinos to greatly exaggerate any Chinese or European ancestry they may have, there actually is a bit of truth to the fact that many Filipinos do have some Chinese blood. In other areas, urban ones in particular, Chinese mestizos enjoyed prestige and were idolized by the Indios for their wealth, at times even intermarrying with native Prince Palia. At the same time, there were many Chinese mestizos who embraced their Chinese side more and melted into the Chinese community, marrying other Chinese. Some even returned with their fathers to China, where they would be raised as Chinese. When I studied in southern China during college, it wasn't rare for me to see some Chinese who could pass for quote-unquote pure Filipino back home and vice versa. 
Chinese ancestry can especially be seen in the last names of some Filipino families. When many Chinese converted to Christianity, as they sometimes did to marry into rich native families, they adopted Hispanized surnames, which they passed down to their mestizo descendants. Today, many people who may consider themselves to be quote-unquote pure Filipinos due to their last name and racial features may be surprised to find out that they may have a bit of Chinese blood in them. At the same time, there were Chinese converts who preserved their old names in a pretty interesting fashion. You see, pure Chinese surnames are monosyllabic, like Go or Tan. But when some Chinese converted, they adopted their whole Chinese name as their new surname. As a result, we now have multisyllabic Chinese surnames like Jokno or Kohuanko. If you are a Filipino with the last name Loxin, chances are that you have at least one Chinese ancestor whose original name sounded something like Loxin. Just like with our pre-Hispanic leaders, Pueblo Indios were now forced to pay tribute to the encomendero despite the fact that it was forbidden by the crown. Since money in the form of coins or bills didn't exist in the Philippines during this period, tribute was mostly paid in crops. Every family in a pueblo, regardless of status, was assigned a plot of land to cultivate crops with, which would then be used to pay tribute. Tribute collection differed between private and crown encomiendas. In private encomiendas, the encomenderos sent troops to collect tribute, while in crown encomiendas, it was the cabezas and gobernadorcillos who collected, though they were accepted from pain. If the gobernadorcillos and cabezas failed to accumulate a town's tribute payments, they would be put to the stocks as punishment. The encomiendas, especially the private ones, were notoriously exploitative and oppressive. Some encomenderos would require natives to pay more than what they owed, and value appraisals of commodities were often fraudulent. In some cases, native villages were required to pay for former residents who had either died or left, despite prohibitions against this practice. In addition, every year, tribute-paying native males between ages 16 and 60 were required to partake in 40 days of personal services and manual labor. The polo y servicios, as this system came to be known, saw many natives being forced to work either as personal servants or as construction workers in public works, building ships, churches, and other constructions. They could reduce the number of days by paying a certain fee called the faria. The polo system, especially the tasks involving manual labor, was practically slavery. Most workers were assigned to cutting down trees for wood. Every day, they would be driven hard by a Spanish foreman for rice rations. Even worse, although the polo period was technically limited to 40 days, this was often violated with many wood-cutting polo workers forced to work as long as eight months. Farmers were hit especially hard, being taken away from their families and unable to harvest their crops. The difficult process of Spanish subjugation and reorganization of native communities, combined with the harshness of the encomienda system, led to a sharp fall in the native population. The decline went into freefall, as the population plummeted from 673,600 in 1588 to 433,696 in 1662. The decline in the native population 
led the king to order the gradual phasing out of private encomiendas, starting in 1718, and placing them under the crown estate. By the 1750s, the native population was back to pre-conquest levels, leading to greater tribute revenue, a larger polo workforce, and more crops for the crown and church. As the years passed, the friars continued to gain more influence over the natives. At first, they just simply accepted gifts such as money and food from them, despite their vows of poverty. They would eventually acquire large estates called haciendas, each one ran by a manager, either a friar or a lay brother. They would then bring in native, Chinese, and Chinese mestizo families to work the land. After converting them to Christianity, the friars would organize these new communities in their estates into pueblos. All of this transformed the friars into a powerful land-only class. By virtue of being the only Spaniards allowed to live in native towns, the friars eventually became the sole conduit between the Indian majority and the Spanish government. They served as census takers and gave advice to the governor general, even in non-religious matters. Their authority grew to a point that, at times, it even surpassed that of the head of the Catholic Church in the Philippines, the Archbishop of Manila. The friars went as far as refusing to let their very, quote-unquote, supervisor inspect their parishes, instead answering only to the head of their respective orders. When Diego Camacho became Archbishop in 1697, Friar opposition to his visitation attempts was so strong that the governor general, fearing a rebellion, convinced the archbishop to drop the issue. Even the governor general himself could not escape the friar's wrath. In 1719, after governor general Fernando Bustamante imprisoned the archbishop of Manila and several friars for harboring Spanish officials that he was investigating for corruption, a mob of the archbishop's supporters stormed the governor's palace and killed the governor and his son. His successor simply ignored the king's orders to prosecute those involved. Moreover, just as the friars criticized civil officials for all sorts of excesses, so did the government officials criticize the friars, which would only increase as the friars continued to gain more power. Accusations included convincing dying natives to let them inherit their properties instead of their children, keeping native mistresses and fathering children with them, and engaging in commerce. The rampancy of the friars' abuses would, in time, be a reason for future rebellions. We're going to wrap up this episode by going over the state of trade and commerce during the early years of Spanish rule. Two words, the Manila Galleon. Before the Spanish arrived, Manila was already a prosperous titan of trade and commerce. Its position, surrounded by rivers and oceans, made it the perfect location for settlements. The natives would trade with merchants from neighboring regions such as China, India, and Japan, as well as Arab traders. By the time Legaspi heard of Manila, the town was already playing a vital role in the eastern market. When the Spanish added the Philippines to the roster of colonies, Manila simply added the west 
to its already extensive trade network. Galleons were mostly constructed in the Philippines, with Indios involved in both their construction and manning. The galleons would then sail from Manila to Acapulco in Mexico, bringing products not just from local merchants and producers, but from traders from China and other parts of Asia as well. From Mexico, they then proceeded to Spain. So despite being rivals and boxing today, Mexicans and Filipinos have had a long history of cultural exchange dating back to the galleon trade. Words from Tagalog and other local languages can be found in Nahuatl, while Mexican cuisine has influenced Filipino food such as cavites tamales, which are the same as those produced in Veracruz, Mexico. It can even be argued that the Mexicans have influenced the way Filipinos pronounce the countless Spanish words imported in the country's languages. I mean, nobody in the Philippines today would say nación, as they do in Spain, but nación, which is a lot closer to Mexico's nación. In addition, some Mexicans have Filipino blood thanks to centuries of intermarriage up to the end of the galleon trade. Some of their offspring would be involved and Mexico's own war of independence from Spain. Just like how you can find Chinese in China who look like, quote-unquote, pure Filipinos, there are also Mexicans who may also pass for, quote-unquote, pure Filipino. You could say that our gene pool is a real melting pot. The introduction of Chinese silk, tea, and other Asian products proved to be popular in the Americas and Europe, while chocolate which originated in the Americas, found an audience in Asia. None of this sat well with merchants back in Spain, who had long monopolized the American market and resented the new competition. They petitioned Madrid to restrict the Philippine-Mexico trade. In 1593, the Spanish government gave in to their demands, limiting the number of ships traveling from Manila to Acapulco per year to just one, as well as other restrictions which proved to be unpopular with Manila's merchants. These measures turned the Philippines from a potential launching pad for Spanish dominance of Asian maritime trade to just a single irrelevant Spanish outpost in the Pacific. If the point of colony was to increase international influence and gain more money along the way, this was not how you did it. Of course, just because Spain didn't want to trade with the Philippines, didn't mean that it was willing to let other foreign powers do so. European trade in the islands was heavily restricted, if not prohibited, though this did not stop British, French, and Dutch merchants from flipping off the Spaniards by bribing colonial officials and hiring Moro sailors to pose as captains of their ships. Ultimately, despite the restrictions, all this foreign trade made Manila one of the first centers of modern globalization, where East and West met. With the age of the internet and huge globalized networks making the world ever smaller today, it cannot be denied that it all started in Manila. Whatever the colonial government collected, either from trade or tribute, the colonial government didn't keep. It all went straight to the royal treasury, or at least to the officials representing the royal treasury in the Philippines, who were not the same as the colonial government's treasurers. Until the 18th century, the colony would be primarily financially supported by crown subsidies. In short, the colonial government collects for the crown. In return, the crown sends an allowance to the colonial government. And so it went. This is Philippine History Z, 
a podcast hosted by me, Emma Lavinia, with Jose Ampil as producer and Marco Revilla as associate producer. Music for this episode is by Kevin McLeod with sound effects from freesound.org. For a full list of music and sound credits, as well as the sources of this episode, check out the show notes on the podcast official site, philippinehistoryz.buzzsprout.com. Next time, we see how the first two centuries of Spanish rule were not exactly the most peaceful, as the Spanish colonial government faces all kinds of threats to its rule, both domestic and foreign. Once again, this is Philippine History Z. See you in the next chapter.